Welcome to episode 110 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Why, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jinstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed, but with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 110 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I am fabulous. I am coming to you from the beach. How are things at the beach? They're good. I'm here with Cal. He just graduated from Georgia Tech. And so we just took a quick trip, just the two of us. My husband is still working. He has exams this week, but Cal is done. And so we're here. We're just having some beach time. So as soon as I finish this podcast, we're going to go out on the beach. (laughs) How are you doing? I am good. My main project recently, I've been trying to 
get theme music for my new podcast. I'm trying to find like a composer to work with. Right. And I've realized, so music and scoring and everything, that's not my, I don't know. I love listening and being a consumer of it, but I can never come up with like a medley. Right. And my growing up, I always thought that the most talented talent, like out of any talent was musical. Cause like I literally everything else, I could see how you could learn how to do it, but something like music, I was like, I don't think I can come up with a new song. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know what you mean. My other son, Will, not the one that's not here with us, he's a musician. And so he's a singer songwriter and he's pretty much amazing at coming up with songs. He's got a great musical talent, but you're right. To me, it is such a talent. There are a lot of talents, but in my head, it's like you can physically train and, you know, become physically better. Like I can write, like I can come up with words. Whenever I try to come up with a new song, it's just a rendition of another song that I've heard. It's never anything new. So it's hard for me. I've like been looking at proposals from composers and I like listen to their work. And so I'm trying to find somebody I like the sense of what they've done before, but then I have like no language for articulating what you want, what I want. I'm like, I hope this makes sense. I was like, I want it to be epic, but simple. Like I was like, I don't have like language words. I can't talk in music terminology. (laughs) Well, Resonate Recordings helped me with that, with intermittent fasting stories. They found the music for me. Like I told them what kind of feel I wanted, and then they sent me five samples And I was like, nope, nope. Oh my God, this is perfect. Nope, nope. So it it really, it was, you just have to hear a lot of things. Well, like I said, I'm I'm trying to get a composer to actually compose something for me rather than like something that was already created. So, but that makes it even harder because I told them the kind of flavor that I wanted. And then when I started listening to what they sent me, I was like, oh, maybe I described what I wanted wrong. Yeah. But then the third one was perfect. Oh, good. And then I loved it. And then I like listened to it all the time for a while because I was so excited. In my like proposal, I said I wanted it to be like, have you been to Epcot? I have been to Epcot. Not recently, not for a long time, but I have. So my all-time favorite piece of instrumental, and I love like movie scores and soundtracks, instrumental music, but my all-time favorite instrumental composition is the soundtrack to the Epcot fireworks show. It's called Illuminations, Reflections of Earth. It is the most beautiful. I'm obsessed with it. (laughs) So in my proposal, I was like, I want this in a 30-second podcast intro that has all the epicness, but is still simple so I can talk over it. Okay. Well, that see, that's that's exactly good info to share. We'll see. We'll see if it um materializes. One person wrote back and they were like, Um, podcast intros are typically pretty simple, so this seems a little strange. And I was like, okay, uh, taking you off the list. (laughs) Um, (laughs) bye. Yeah. You're, you're not my guy. (laughs) One person was like, Oh, I I listened to your podcast. One of the composers. That's fabulous. I love that. So get excited. Hope. I mean, I'm like a perfectionist, so I'm not going to stop until I feel like I have the perfect intro. It has to feel right. It has to have the vibe you want. Yep. So exciting things. And then, oh, I don't, I, it probably, I imagine it'll be out by the time this is out. Hopefully you can now get the audiobook of Healing Lyme. If you at all have Lyme disease, struggle with Lyme disease, know people with Lyme disease or are interested in the topic. So that should be out. I hope. Oh, also, before we start with everything, Jen, did you see we just got that email from that listener about the Zach Bush episode? Yes. Because we had Dr. Zach Bush on the podcast in the past, and he was amazing. He developed the Restore supplement, but he's really into how um, modern farming practices have influenced the environment and everything. And he was amazing. And I had said that I had heard him on another podcast, which is actually actually the Rich Roll podcast. I just realized I didn't have a link to that in our Himalaya playlist. So I am putting for everybody a link to that in the Himalaya playlist stuff, intermittent fasting podcast stuff we like. Um, we are a Himalaya partner show. And if you download the Himalaya app, 
It's really, really amazing because you can follow our show. You can get access to us 24 hours in advance. You can make custom playlists and you can do things like follow my playlist (laughs) that I made, that intermittent fasting stuff we like. And that's where I put all the episodes that I've been listening to from other podcasts that I find really interesting. Also just added another one to it because I was listening to this. I really recommend this. Jen, are you familiar with Tom Bilyeu? No. He's the co-founder of Quest Nutrition. Okay. I'm familiar with that. Yeah. I recently discovered Dr. Peter Atia's podcast. Oh my goodness. How did I not know about this podcast? It's so amazing. It's really deep and sciencey. He interviews like everybody that I'm obsessed with, but he interviewed this Tom Bilyeu, who's the co-founder of Quest Nutrition. And it was the most motivating podcast ever. And he's really into intermittent fasting. And he talked about, I mean, he didn't talk about it the whole time, but um, he did talk about, he does like one meal a day. I really did like all the really top performing people do one meal a day. Like for reals. I know. I know. It is true because (laughs) once you realize how much better you feel mentally, you know, the, the clarity, honestly, I can't imagine eating early in the day. I mean, I'm going to be tired and lethargic if I eat early in the day and I'm not going to be mentally my best. Like the few times I was experimenting with daytime eating recently, which has been way more times than I have at any other point in my life up until this time. And every single time I do, my productivity just like plummets, plummets. (laughs) And I don't know if that's like at this point, I don't know if that's like habitual because I'm like, well, Melanie, in the past you were eating all day and you were getting a lot done. So is it like that I've just, you know, started associating these cues with, oh, I'm eating so I can't be productive? No. I remember back in the day when I was, you know, eating frequently, and I remember how it felt as a teacher. And I was drinking coffee all afternoon just to keep myself alert. Like I was heavily relying on, you know, or like a little snack because my energy would lag and I would have to fuel back up with something. So, I mean, I, I think, I mean, it's physiological. I don't think it's, you know, an emotional or mental kind of thing. So the, the times recently when I have been experimenting with it, I'll get like really tired after a meal and me in my head, I'm like, oh my goodness, this means I can't process food because I'm getting tired. But then I hear other people talk about like, you know, needing a nap after eating and like the, the afternoon slump. And I'm like, okay, I guess it is kind of normal. It's normal. Yeah takes a lot of energy to digest food. And I always think about lions. After they eat a big meal, they always go to sleep. Oh, yeah. That's like I was saying last time with like the carnivores and like sleeping and everything. Um, but yeah, I definitely t- recommend listeners check out that interview because it was if you like want motivation to feel like to do bigger and better things, it's really motivational. It'll make you want to just do things now. He's like, he's like so on fire. I want to do things. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do things. I put a link to that in Intermittent Fasting Podcast Stuff We Like, so definitely follow us on Himalaya. All right, shall we jump into everything for today? Yes, let's get started. We have some feedback first from Jazz, and the subject is, comment regarding breaks from fasting and energy, decide carefully. This is so funny. This actually, I didn't plan this, but this actually goes well with what we were just talking about. Yeah. All right, so Jazz says, hi, Jen and Melanie. I recently learned to consider. Recently, I did a 44-kilometer three-day hike in the Blue Mountains near Sydney, Australia with my daughter. I stuck to my usual window the first two days and experienced nice, stable energy and good endurance. On the final day, my lovely daughter persuaded me to eat half her breakfast muesli. I'm not sure if it was the high-sugar food, the timing, or the physical exertion, which resulted in GI distress sagging energy levels for the rest of the day. I also felt like my muscle soreness became worse and I became so much thirstier. So my advice to other listeners is to consider possible side effects or at least test out before the camping trip and to trust your instincts and not feel pressured. Yeah, so I thought this was a really good email to include, especially because I feel like we've been having a lot of dialogue recently about, you know, how it, how it is okay to break your fast and how it is okay to, you know, you don't have to be doing intermittent fasting all the time. But then on the flip side, I thought this was another nice perspective as well that at the same time, don't feel like you have to break your fast if you don't want to, you know, like I feel like it's good to just have a really 
comprehensive, nuanced perspective where you are, in any case, you're okay with everything that you're making decision-wise. So I think that's the main thing really is just like doing it for your body, your health and where you are at that moment and being okay with it. I think, I think that's a takeaway for me at least. Yeah. And, and just realize how you're going to feel like for me on Saturday, Cal's graduation was at, at nine in the morning. And when it was over, right around noon, we went and had brunch. Well, he's leaving Atlanta. Actually, he's left. <laughs> he's left Atlanta. And he and his girlfriend were there with my husband and I. So we went to a nice brunch at noon. We had mimosas. We ate brunch. I didn't have anything that I needed to be mentally sharp for. On the way home from Atlanta, I was falling asleep in the car. I was not driving. Fortunately, my husband was, but he kept poking me because I was falling asleep over there. He's like, stop sleeping. I'm like, stop waking me up. But I didn't feel like that the day before when we were driving to Atlanta in the fasted state, right? So it's just a matter of knowing you know, what the trade-offs are going to be. If you want to you know, be at your physical best and your mental best, Maybe don't have that that heavy brunch or the muesli or the, you know, whatever. But if, you, if you're if you fine with the trade-off, do it. Yeah. And then I think either way, like I said, once you do make the decision to do one or the other, I don't think it's like, it doesn't benefit you to like second guess or feel guilty about it. You know, just, oh yeah, do you. <laughs> oh, I had zero guilt. I don't have guilt ever when it comes to food, which is a great place to find myself now. You know, so many of us have had that diet mentality for so long that you do feel, you know, at the beginning, especially as you have to work through those years of diet thinking that you're you're kind of unlearning, you know, because we build these scripts up in our head, you know, like, oh, if I eat this, it's a bad thing. And then I'm going to feel bad emotionally, not physically, you know, sometimes I might feel bad physically if I choose to eat something, but I don't feel bad emotionally. Like I don't feel guilty. That That's, I think, the big distinction. To learn, you know, to get to the point where you can disassociate feelings of shame or guilt or like I messed up. It doesn't even have to come from, you know, weight loss or diet also. Because like for me, I had that back in the dieting days. Then I had a really long period with intermittent fasting paleo where I didn't have any guilt or anything. And then it crept back in not because of weight, but because of IBS and food intolerances and wondering if I was, you know, doing a disservice to my body and certain food choices. So that's a whole nother area where second guessing can come in. But honestly, I just feel like, and this is why I just keep repeating it to myself and to others that just being okay with things and having gratitude and everything is way more nourishing and healing than any sort of second guessing or fear surrounding food. So... Yeah. All right. So we jump into our questions for today. Yes. All right. So to start things off, we have a few questions that are all related. So I will go through these, although I feel like we're going to have a pretty short answer. First question comes from Rachel. The subject is dry fasting slash autophagy. Rachel says, hi, Jen and Melanie. What a great combination you two are. Thank you so much for all the research you do. It helps us understand things much clearer. My question is in regards to dry fasting and autophagy. I've heard that dry fasting gets you into autophagy much quicker than clean fasting with water, tea, or black coffee. What are your thoughts? And do you ever dry fast? If so, how long? Keep up the great work. Sharon, subject dry fasting. She says, hello, ladies. I so look forward to your podcast every Monday because it's a fun, wonderful way to learn all about the ins and outs of the IF lifestyle. Lately, I've been hearing a little about dry fasting which means nothing, including water during the fast, and would love to hear your thoughts on this subject. What really intrigued me was that I read that one day of dry fasting for 24 hours had the same effect as water fasting for 72 hours. A big thank you to both of you for all your research. We really all appreciate all you both do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Melissa, subject dry fasting. She says, Jen and Melanie, I adore your podcasts and listen to them and take notes when I want to remember to think about something that you all were talking about in more depth. So please know that all of your research and hard work gathering info is greatly appreciated. My question is about dry fasting. I don't even know if I would be able to do it as my daily medication has a side effect of dry mouth, but I am curious to know what any possible benefits would be from drinking nothing at all while fasting. I've read several things, but most of it has opposing answers. 
I'm 43 and I've been doing IF 24 for almost two months and I've not lost much, but I know my body has much healing to do from all of my years of yo-yo dieting. After 26 years of daily headaches, IF has totally cured me of them. IF will forever be my way of life. Is dry fasting helpful for weight loss? Thank you in advance, Melissa. So Jen, what are your thoughts? Jen didn't even want to talk about dry fasting. (laughs) I just wanted to like bring it up because we get a lot of questions. So I just want to like bring it up so we can check it off. And I want to say, Melissa, first of all, congratulations after having 26 years of daily headaches and now you're totally cured of them. That is amazing. So yeah, when Melanie put these questions in about dry fasting, I was like, I don't even want to talk about dry fasting because it's a topic that concerns me. And here's why. I was one of those people, and and many people are like me, that whenever you heard about something that other people were doing might have a benefit, I might be like, oh, let me try that. And some things you know, I never would have thought of by myself. For example, dry fasting is one of them. And so I really believe this is like one of those proceed with so much caution. You know, it's like one of those things you don't want to even talk about because then people will start experimenting in a way that might be dangerous for their health. And this is just one of the things that I worry about with the whole idea of dry fasting. You know, there's there are Facebook groups related to it. There's, you know, train of thought. Like, you know, I've, I've read all those claims too. I was actually briefly a member of one of those. It might've been the only one that was around for a while, a dry fasting Facebook group. There might be more now. I don't know. But I briefly, during the research process of learning about fasting and, you know, hoping to have the, the most health benefits possible, I dipped my toe into that community and joined the group. I never did dry fasting, but I read the things they were talking about and, it was so alarming to me and so many red flags that, you know, even the reading that I did, you know, the scientific basis, the claims, I was like, no, I feel like this could actually be very dangerous for a lot of people. And so I don't recommend it. I don't promote it. We don't discuss it in my Facebook groups because even if, let's say, there are some fabulous benefits that could be found in this type of regimen. I still think, you know, just like I have the the philosophy with fasts longer than 72 hours, you should be under medical supervision. This is one of those times a hundred. You know, if you had a medical clinic that was experimenting with this kind of thing with patients and you had a doctor and you were being monitored, okay. But most people are just like trying things on their own. And so I would absolutely a hundred percent not recommend that you try to do extended dry fasting. I'm I'm even talking, you know, like, like 24 hours or 12 hours or whatever. Now, that being said, some people are listening to my conversation and they're like, yeah, but what about Ramadan fasting? Yes, that is, that is dry fasting. That's religious fasting. That's every day. And it's like sun up to sundown. And so, you know, they're not going 24 hours without liquids. So that's really important to keep in mind. And so are you going to have, you know, a terrible health problem if you go to 12 hours or eight hours without drinking something? Probably not. But I absolutely would not recommend that you try to do, you know, long periods, 24 hours, even 18 hours. I just wouldn't unless you have a healthcare practitioner guiding you. I want you to be safe. So that is, you know, Jen and the disclaimer about that. And please be careful. What do you think, Melanie? In your research, what did you come across with this, the research on it? It's been a long time. There, I read a book or a pamphlet or something. It was something on the internet that actually went into, it talked about your body burning things up and how great it was and that you would get all the water you needed from your cells. I don't know. There's all these claims. But you know, there's a lot of claims about a lot of things. So just because someone claims that you know, this is fabulous and not harmful and you can go for three weeks or whatever. That doesn't mean it's true. And so I don't want to start risking it and experimenting with something on the word of a pamphlet that I read on the internet. That just doesn't seem like a smart thing to do because it's very, very extreme. Yeah. So basically from the research that I found, I found a lot of articles talking about it. It was hard for me to find actual right research on Okay, well, on dry fasting, specifically, that said, like Jen just noted, Ramadan is dry fasting, 
And so any of the studies that you find on Ramadan fasting, which show benefits, which there are numerous, numerous, numerous studies on that, we can just understand, okay, this is showing benefits from intermittent fasting in a dry fasted pattern, you know, not extended. Like it's just like Jim was saying during the daylight hours. So in a way, yes, you could automatically apply the benefits of intermittent fasting in that shorter time span from the Ramadan studies. What I kept reading online, well, as far as weight loss goes, it seems that you are most likely going to see a greater weight loss because your body has full water from somewhere. So it can pull water from your fat cells. So you're going to lose water there. That said, I I can't imagine that that would be as much of a long lasting permanent effect. I don't know. I personally haven't dry fasted. I also was reading that it does create a greater detox reaction just because since you're not supplementing in that water, you are pulling the water from internally from the fat cells. And we do know toxins are stored within the fat cells. So it is going to be a way to more quickly, you know, excrete toxins, which given our prior conversations of how toxic a lot of people are, I feel like that that could also add to the argument of making it even more dangerous if you're not properly, you know, supporting detoxification. So there are studies on urinary output and dry fasting and how the body responds to that. And it does seem that the body is pretty good at adjusting to water intake. So they'll do studies in athletes, for example, that are not taking in water and they don't necessarily become dehydrated. And the same same with the Ramadan studies, they don't become dehydrated necessarily. And that's because the body responds, you know, appropriately and conserves water and changes its level of diuretic hormones and such so that there's not actually, you, you don't actually necessarily become dehydrated, but you could, <laughs> you know, I'm just saying that it seems that that's not quite as much of a potential problem as some people, as some people may think, but I'm on the same page as Jen and that I, I don't know. I just feel like I'm a big proponent of doing things that feel very, very intuitive. And people would say that, oh, well, fasting isn't intuitive, but once you get into the fasting zone in a way, it is very intuitive. It is. Yeah. Like it feels just very intuitive. In a way, to me, it feels more intuitive than anything else. True. And I think water for me, I feel like that's one thing that is just always been intuitive. So I just feel like, like, let it be intuitive, you know? <laughs> so if you're doing fasting, I feel like if you're thirsty, drink water, but then also you don't have to necessarily stress about how much water are you getting, you know, unless there's like an electrolyte problem or something like that. I mean, you, you want to be aware of how much water you're having. I don't know. I guess my point is I, I'm not a huge fan of the dry fasting route. You can try it, of course, as an experiment, but just proceed with caution and know that we are wary. Yeah. I really want to just encourage people to be safe. And I think probably most of our listeners would not try it because- I mean, while I don't believe you need to pound down glass after glass of water, you know, like those giant jugs of water that people carry around, unless you're like out in the hot sun, I don't think you need to drink, you know, five bazillion gallons of water a day. But on the flip side, I wouldn't purposefully not consume liquid unless it was part of your religious, you know, Ramadan fasting. And even then, like we, we said, that is just, you know, sunrise, sunset. That was one of the things I took away from reading the urine studies was basically if fasting or not fasting aside, it seems that if, you know, taking pounds and pounds of water a day, that's okay. But you'll be like excreting pounds and pounds of water a day. If you're taking in less, you'll be excreting less. Like the body responds. So it's pretty interesting. Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get an exclusive discount on one of my favorite products for truly upgrading your health on a cellular level. So the new year is upon us and it's often a time where people are really trying to instill new habits and really upgrade their health. There's something I have been using for years, not just at the new year, Literally every single day of my life, I am not making that up. Even when I travel, I have a way to address it then, which I will tell you about. And it's something that is so easy and feels amazing. That is red light and near infrared therapy. Okay, so friends, you could go somewhere and pay a lot of money to do red light near infrared therapy sessions, or you could just bring it to your home and use it every single day. 
that's what I do. I've been using Juve Red and Near Infrared Light Therapy devices for so long. There are so many clinically proven benefits of red light therapy that includes improving your skin. Yes, you really will notice it. Faster muscle recovery, reduced pain and inflammation, enhanced sleep, and so much more. I use it in the morning and evening as ambient light because it actually mimics the setting and rising sun. And then I sort of run it throughout the day as well to help combat all of the blue light that we're exposed to, which can have a negative effect on our health. Whenever I have muscle pain, I shine Juve on the muscle. For me, it has made the pain go away instantly. And then for chronic pain, when I do continued sessions, it's made it dissipate. One of my good friends who is a doctor uses these devices on his, shall we say, manhood for benefits there. Yes, it can help in that department as well. I honestly could not imagine my life without Juve. You will just feel so good using these devices. People also post all the time in our Facebook group of their pets gravitating towards the Juve because intuitively they just know that it's good for them. The reason Juve can address so many things related to health is because it actually affects our cells on the mitochondrial level. Basically, it makes those cells perform better. And when those cells are performing better, everything just works better. That's why, yes, Juve can help with your energy as well. I've been recommending Juve specifically for years because the quality of their devices are the best. Their modular design allows for a variety of setup options to give you flexibility. The treatments are so easy. You can do them in as little as 10 minutes, or you can be using it all throughout the day like I do. All you have to do is relax and let your body take in the light. They also have their Juve Go, which you can travel with. Yes, that is how I really do use this every single day. That Go is also great for targeting specific areas of your body, like hurting joints or sore muscles. Honestly, friends, health doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be complicated. If you're looking to enhance your health and wellness this new year, start with what matters, which is your cells. And Juve has an amazing offer just for our audience. You can go to juve.com slash IF podcast and use the coupon code IF podcast to get a discount on your qualifying order. Again, that's J-O-O-V-V.com forward slash IF podcast to get an exclusive discount on your order. Pick up a Juve today. Some exclusions apply. I really hope you guys can experience Juve. It really is one of my favorite things. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. All right, shall we jump into our next question? Yes, this is from Carla. And the subject is raw data DNA. She says, hello, I have recently received my raw data from Ancestry.com. I know that both of you have used your raw data to submit to various vendors to get health and our nutritional information. I tried to go back and find those little gold nuggets of information, but I could not. Would you mind sharing those websites slash vendors? I've already done DNA fit and was amazed at some of the results, but I would like to check them against other data for consistency. Plus, the more data you have, the more you can learn and experiment. Thank you. Love all the information. All right. So yeah, so I got my raw data actually from a Facebook group. I don't even know if it's around anymore. It's like it was a Facebook project called Genes for Good. So it was basically like a research funded free version of 23andMe. I don't I think it's closed now. But um then from there, Prometheus is what I used to like you can analyze your raw data yourself and really and search for each individual thing, <laughs> snip and see what's doing what. So that was really interesting. And then I've used DNA Fit as well before. Jim, what have you used? Well, I I did the same as you at first. I analyzed it myself, looking at the different SNPs and what they they said. And then most recently, I ran it through one called Xcode Life that um, I think someone on one of my Facebook groups was using. And so I was like, all right, I'll try this one. They have different reports you can get and you pay different amounts based on what you want. And it really was fascinating. And it just went along with pretty much what I knew from my own dieting history. It just confirmed it. You know, did it change my life to the point that I adopted a lot of, you know, new ways of eating? No, but it really confirmed a lot of what I already knew. One of the things that was the most interesting was what it said with me with fat, that I'm, I'm not someone who does well with more fat versus less fat. I would tend to do better with less fat, but they broke that down even further for me. And what was fascinating is that my body tends to do better with saturated fat sources and less well with like the olive oil type of fat, which is fascinating. And then it made me start thinking about all of the research on 
the Mediterranean diet being so healthy for us. And the fact that all of that research is done on those people who live in that region. And so maybe, you know, the whole olive oil is great for you is because the people that they studied that with are the ones with the the genetics that does really well with the olive oil. Whereas, you know, for me, I'm going to do better with the butter fat and the cream fat. Anyway, that just made me start thinking about it in an all new way, which made sense. That reminds me, would you like to know what my most recent obsession, obsession, obsession is as far as like research and I'm like having mind shifting paradigm like moments? Sure. Polyunsaturated fats. Okay. So tell me more. What do you mean? Jen, this is like haunting me. It goes back to, I I know I've mentioned Ray Pete before. Right. I don't know if people are familiar with him at all, but he's all about mitigating inflammation in the body and everything. And he he doesn't have like any one diet. He has like a huge like follower fan base and they've kind of created this Ray Pete diet, but it's more about like, you know, finding what works for you and really like taking the parts of what he says that works for you. There's not, he doesn't have like a prescribed diet. But his main thing, he has a lot of things, but his main thing is polyunsaturated fats. Because, you know, we talk about the omega-3, omega-6 ratio. Right. So, and we're often thinking like, oh, high omega-3, you know, is a good thing. But his theory is that polyunsaturated fats in any in any capacity, really, I mean, they oxidize so easily. And so we don't want our cellular, cellular membranes made up of polyunsaturated fats. We want them mostly made of like saturated fats basically. And so that would come, you know, straight from saturated fats or having our body make its own fats that are appropriate from carbs. So he would not be putting olive oil on everything he eats. Right. And like nuts and seeds and things like that. And I'm actually starting to see this crop up in a lot of other places as well. But the thing that's really getting to me is that the the cellular turnover rate of the fats in our cells are I mean, what is the half-life? Uh, 600 days, I think. So like in the, in the repeat forms and stuff, they'll say, you know, a person, one of the things people do, they try to do, quote, PUFA depletion, which is basically going and depleting all of the um, polyunsaturated fats from their cells and replacing those with more stable saturated fats. Because like I said, um, when those polyunsaturated fats are metabolized, they're very oxidative and they create stress. So even when we're processing them right from what we ate. So, I mean, it's a really big problem today because of all of the seed oils that are used in cooking. So that's where it's really a problem. But even like nuts and seeds and even things like fatty fish and even things like, I don't know. I mean, olive oil is more monounsaturated, but I don't know, like, you know, other sources as well. But the thing that's been haunting me is this 600-day half-life, which basically equates to about four years to completely deplete your PUFA storage levels. And so another reason I've been thinking about a lot is I, I I honestly feel like I was not aware of all of this research. And then I think the dietary approach that I adopted was very similar to what he says, minus a few things. And um, I think I sort of naturally depleted myself of polyunsaturated fats without realizing it. And then I, all of my like, you know, my nut experiences recently, <laughs> eating like lots of like almonds and cashews and pumpkin seeds because I was really craving them. But now I'm like researching the the omega-6, the omega-3s. And I'm like, oh, did I did I fill up my PUFA stores? Do I have to go through four years now? Because <laughs> they're comparing it to like, you know, if you have like a, I'm sorry, this is like such a tangent, but hopefully some, some listeners will find this interesting. They're comparing it to like, if you have a gallon of water, you know, and it's like clear. And even if you put in just like a drop of like really dark, you know, blue coloring, like just a little bit, it's still like, it like slightly will turn all of the water, you know, a lighter blue. And it's like harder to get out that light color. Yeah. You know, like you think, oh, I'm just adding a little bit. I can take it right out, but it like saturates the water and it's going to take a while to get it out. Oh, I just pulled up my report. So I, I I couldn't remember exactly what it said about which fat for me. And it has like green and red and different sections. And so the section on saturated fat intake and weight gain tendency, I get a green there, less likely to gain weight on high saturated fat intake. But for both mono and poly unsaturated fats, I am in the red. 
I am highly likely to gain weight with high mono unsaturated fat intake and also highly likely to gain weight with polyunsaturated fat intake. So I read that and I was like, huh, you know, maybe I should stop using so much olive oil when I cook. But that made me start thinking in the whole, anyway, fascinating, fascinating. So you would actually go well with um, maybe the Ray Pete line of thinking, at least just in that regard. Yeah. So I'm less likely to gain weight on high carb and less likely to gain weight on high saturated fat. So it sounds like bread with butter is better for me than <laughs> than a approach with lots of olive oil. Oh, that, that's another tangent, Jen. I was telling you, Jen, this earlier. I was talking yesterday actually with Dr. Alan Christensen. And you know what, you know what else we were talking about? What? We were talking about de novo lipogenesis and the complete like misunderstanding surrounding that. He he mentioned that and I was like, I think about that all the time. You know, people say that um we create fat from carbs. Yeah. We don't. I mean I mean like it, it just it doesn't really That's not exactly what's happening. Yeah. Cause you know people will just throw around and they'll say like like any extra carbs become fat. Right. That's what people say. Yeah. Like like honestly your body turns barely any extra carbs to fat. It's just that when you have the the carbs, you're in a fat storing mode. Right. So you're storing all those extra calories. You're storing all that fat. You're not burning fat. But but you're very rarely actually turning carbs into fat. Sorry. I just thought about that. Yeah, I've read that too. Any physician that's written a high carb, lower fat approach eating plan goes into the science of that. And it really is fascinating. And it lets you realize how how misunderstood it really is and you know where the actual fat storage is coming from. Xcode is the one I did as well. Oh, that's funny. And it recommends for me, it says I'm also less likely to gain weight on high saturated fat intake. I'm less likely to gain weight with high monounsaturated fat intake, high likely to gain weight with high PUFA intake. So you think some people are like less likely to gain weight with high PUFA? Because that's another thing that I was taking away with doing all the research on polyunsaturated facts is that they seem to be very weight promoting. It feels like to me that if they have people who are highly likely, there'd be people who are highly less likely, right? Or, you know, highly unlikely. Yeah. And it it goes back to, again, all the diet books we read that have dietary recommendations. I would love to see the author of that book's, you know, Xcode life analysis to see, you know, perhaps they just have written a diet book that goes along with their DNA analysis of themselves that they've figured out over time. And, you know, they're saying this is universally what everyone should eat, but really it's what is tailored to helping them lose weight. I think we're just all so different. And the more you learn about it, the more you realize it's fascinating. I'm I'm fascinated by this. But now, like I said, my latest thinking is about the Mediterranean diet and so much of the research on it has been done with the people in the Mediterranean region. And so how much of it is the diet and how much of it is it that that naturally matches their genetics? Yeah, no, that completely makes sense. So somebody like me with, you know, ancestry from more, you know, the British Isles, Northern Europe, maybe the Mediterranean you know, isn't exactly the best for me. Yep. There are just so many factors at play. Yeah. So yeah, so lots of tangents there. But I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. The show notes will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 110. It is fascinating to think about. And so, you know, maybe my latest habit of eating a lot of olives and feta that I get out of the olive bar that have olive oil, maybe I should stop snacking on that (laughs) quite so much. I got really excited in one moment because I was like, oh, I love like nuts and seeds. And these will be like a healthy way to also like put on some weight as well. But now I'm like, oh no, I should I can't put on PUFA weight. I need to put on saturated fat weight. So I should be like binging on the, the coconut oil instead. Well, <laughs> for me, it just all comes back to, you know, dairy fat seems to work well for me. Oh, that, that's another thing that Ray Pete loves is dairy. He loves dairy. I would love to see his, I, I have read his work. I have. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't have books or anything. He just writes I've read his website. Yeah. He writes really complicated articles. Yeah. I've been on his website. But then the thing I like about the forums is that I don't really go around forums for like low carb or things like that. But the, the people who do the Ray Pete stuff, I feel like it's 
not to make generalizations, but they're all very, very well-versed and very, most of them are very, very smart. So like if you read the conversations in those forums, I mean, half of the conversations are like over my head, but they're all very technical. They're all referencing studies. They're all discussing things. And that's what I really, really like. So um, that's why I find like I take away so much from that and learn a lot. Did you ever read Matt Stone's books? He wrote like Eat for Heat. Okay, this is so funny. So Matt, that's not his real name. Oh, is it not his real name? No. It's funny because his thing is, you know, eat all the things, raise your metabolism. That's the other thing about Ray P. He's all about raising your metabolism. I think Matt Stone is also eat all the things, but he's like, except polyunsaturated fats. Like that's like the thing that he doesn't want you to. Well, Matt Stone's work is what led me to Ray Pete back, you know, when I was reading Matt Stone's books, The Eat for Heat. That really taught me, you know, if you take your basal body temperature and it's low and it's always low, then your metabolism is slow for one reason or the other. So that, that you know, really taught me a lot. And I kind of knew that from my reading about the thyroid that I had done. It all, you know, is connected the metabolic health. There are a lot of ways to judge it, but if your body temperature is consistently low, your metabolism is is kind of low, that those things go together. Yeah, that's pretty much the main marker people can measure to ascertain their thyroid without like getting their blood levels checked. Yeah, and that used to be the way doctors diagnosed it. We have a temperature. Before all the quote better ways that are, are they really better? I don't think so. So... Anyway, fascinating, fascinating discussion. Awesome. All right. So we have a question from Jamie. The subject is cheese and dairy. And Jamie says, like you both, I tried the keto diet with commitment and vigor in the fall of 2017 and stuck with it for more than five months. While I initially lost about 12 pounds, the diet wasn't really working long term. I moved on to try Whole30, but again, not much success. As I begin one meal a day this time, fasting clean rather than with cream and stevia-laden coffee, I am wondering how you both feel about dairy. Do you incorporate cheese or cream into your nightly window? Do you save it for the occasional meal? Do you avoid it altogether? All right, Jen? Love this question because it fits in so well with what I was talking about before with the Xcode Life and the 23andMe analysis. And that is actually one of the things that you get back on just your standard 23andMe report. You know, you'll read a lot of books again. You know, I remember reading Mary Lou Henner's book that she wrote in the 90s about how everybody should eat. And there were like four rules that she followed. I can't remember what they were. Like no sugar was one of them. And one of them was no dairy. And it worked so well for her. So I was like, I'm going to do that too. So I did exactly what Mary Lou did and didn't lose any weight. But You know, she goes into the whole thing about humans aren't meant to eat dairy, dairy's, you know, food for cows, food for babies, that sort of thing. So, you know, it all makes sense when you hear it read like that or when you hear it presented like that, but it didn't work for my body. Well, then when I got my 23andMe report, it actually says right in there that over 70% of adults worldwide have trouble digesting dairy products like milk. That's a pretty big number. 70%. And so it makes sense that then a lot of people would have trouble with dairy and maybe they should avoid, maybe 70% of the population should not be having dairy products. But good news for Jen, (laughs) I am in that 30%. And dairy doesn't make me stuffy and mucusy and have stomach problems and all the things that the people who say never eat dairy, it's terrible for you. It doesn't do those things to me. And so dairy is a great food for me. I eat a lot of cheese. And if you just look at the the DNA analysis, it makes sense as to why it would work well for me. I'm in the 30%. And my ancestors came from regions of the world where they ate a lot of dairy. And so our bodies adjusted to having the dairy. So boom. I feel like dairy is one of those things that maybe a lot of people shouldn't have, but some people can have it. And so there's not going to be a blanket statement that I'm going to give you that no one should have dairy. Yeah. So my thoughts on dairy are very nuanced and complex. And I talk about this a ton in What One Wine. So I will refer you to my book for that. Um, Basically, my thoughts on dairy is that it's really complicated because I think there's a huge, huge difference between, especially in America, 
the commercialized modern version of dairy compared to like grass-fed pastured dairy from like goat's milk. And there's two different types of milk, A1, A2, which have to do with the genetic morphism that occurred in cows, which made dairy more inflammatory today. So if you can get the original form, that might be less inflammatory for a lot of people. I think a lot of the modern practices around dairy have made it more inflammatory for a lot of people who might be fine on like raw cultured versions or A2 dairy, for example. So with that like complicated-ness aside, I think dairy is something that some people are completely fine with it. Other people, you know, react to it and it's going to be inflammatory for them. I was mentioning Gray Pete earlier. He's a huge dairy fan. I remember we had like Ori Hoff Meckler on the podcast. He's a big fan of dairy. So I think dairy has a, a wonderful nourishing place in a lot of people's lives. I think it's just a matter of does it work for you? What is the form that it's in? I think that's the main thing. And the, the, other, the other thing is, and I do think there is logic behind this concept, but dairy is the only thing I can think of that we take in that is maybe soy is like a phytoestrogen, you know, something like that, but like a hormonal food in that it is its quote purpose is to, you know, grow and nourish a baby. So especially in our current society today where we are constantly eating and we are constantly creating this constant growth stimulus, I don't know if that is always necessarily the the healthiest thing. But then again, you know, maybe an intermittent fasting pattern where we are allowing our bodies to rest and heal and then we're entering the growth state in our eating window. I feel like that, you know, that could possibly be an even healthier way to take in dairy if it is a food that would work for you. So I think it has its place. I think it's a matter of finding out if it's a food that works for you. And that said, I do think it could be very beneficial across the board for people to take it out for a little bit, see how they feel without it, reintroduce it, see how they feel and evaluate from there. Yeah, I agree. So as far as for my personal answer in my head, I love dairy so much. Cheese is like my favorite thing in the whole world. I just know me and I I can't because (laughs) for two reasons, um, I do get very mucousy and reacty to it. And then the second thing is um, dairy also creates the release of uh, opioid-like compounds. It's very addictive. A lot of people experience a sort of addiction with cheese and that's the way I am. If I have one piece of cheese, there will be no cheese. Like I will eat all of the cheese. And and then I won't feel good. I'm in like an extremist. So for me, it's just easier to say no. I'm not the type of person that does well with like a small amount. So for me and my sanity and my sense of peace, it's just easier for me to avoid. That honestly is easier for me than having a little bit. Yeah, I'm a big fan of avoiding anything that you know makes you feel bad. See, cheese does not make me feel bad. So that's that's the key. Now, you know, you talked about how dairy is designed to stimulate growth, and that's actually the purpose of it. It's for feeding babies during the period of time when they're growing, you know, exponentially, which is why I always, you know, shake my head when people are like, oh, milk and coffee doesn't break a fast. <laughs> Cream doesn't break a fast. I'm like, this is food for building building a baby. This is all that babies have. And of course, it's food, right? That's a really good point. That always comes into my mind when people are like, oh, a little milk, it doesn't break the fast. I'm like, that is the whole purpose of milk is to build build something. <laughs> I never thought about that in that context. If we could just say, hey, everybody have cream and milk during the fast, then everybody would be so happy. But no, you can't. But, <laughs> But, you know, it doesn't make sense when you think about it biologically that it would be fine. I agree. So we have a question from Adrian, and the subject is better to open or close window with wine. And Adrian says, hi, Melanie and Jen. I love your podcast. I apologize if this has been asked before, but I've listened to every episode and I don't remember hearing it. Is it better to drink wine at the start or end of the eating window? I've read that digestion slash metabolism of other foods stops until the body processes the alcohol So I'm wondering which option would be better to avoid prolonging the time it takes to get back into a fasting state, or if there are any other things to consider when deciding whether to have it first or last. So this is like a perfect question for you, Melanie. All right, perfect. Well, thank you so much for your question, Adrienne. Really good question. I don't think we've addressed this specifically. So 
I wouldn't look at it from the perspective of how am I going to get into the fasted states sooner? Because either way, you have your eating window. Because people often ask us that. They're like, what's going to make me get into the fasted state, you know, faster? But either way, you have your eating window and you're going to be in the post-absorptive, quote, fasted because you're not eating, but you're like in the fed state still. You're going to be in that for a while regardless. You know, like, like we know it takes around... For most people, the average, they say it's about 12 hours or so to make over that switch to burning fatty acids, but that probably varies by individual. I think it's more important to focus on, instead of like what is going to make me get into the fasted state faster, just focus on what foods are going to nourish me and combine best and make me feel the best after. I feel like that's a more beneficial and enlightening perspective. So when it comes to wine, I personally recommend having it at the beginning or during. If we just look at the way wine is consumed historically, especially as like a digestive, a digestive, is that that how they say it? I think so. Yeah. Just like in culture, you know, typically it's had with food and it's had, you know, to like stimulate digestion in, in the beginning. And then, I mean, I guess we do see like ports and after dinner dessert drinks at the end of a meal, for example. But just like naturally, I feel like we see it opening with the food and then with the meal. And um, especially if you're doing a later night eating window, I don't advocate having the wine and the alcohol, you know, way later and then closer to bedtime because we do know it could interfere with um, circadian rhythms. So I think it's probably best to have it earlier in your window so that you can get all the benefits without having negative impacts on your sleep. So it's really a matter of what works for you. But I would say at the start of your eating window and then like perhaps with your meal, if you're going to choose like opening or closing. Yeah. You know, as far as the science goes, that makes really good sense there. Personally, I tend to often close with wine. (laughs) Just because, you know, I'll have my glass of wine with dinner and I'm not done with it. And so then I'll keep sipping it and then I'm done with it and then I'm finished. I just, you know, I, I'm i of the the mindset and people that have been listening a lot know this about me. I'm of the mindset that I don't want to worry about perfection as much as what feels like a lifestyle. So if I want to finish drinking my wine and close my window with that, just because that's the way it fits into the way I like to live. That's what I'm going to do. And maybe it would have been better to finish it with my dinner or I'm not going to worry about that so much. So Melanie gave you the science, which is really good advice. And I'm going to give you the more practical live your life advice. And you can pick and choose from both and incorporate them all. It's up to you. What do you think? Yeah, I guess I'm also just looking at me just practically. And there was a period of my time where I was having more wine. It's just me, but I was having wine, you know, later. And then I think to when I switched to having it at the beginning and then during the meal, but not so much after that I was sleeping better. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm not like drinking wine for hours after my meal. So I don't want to give that. (laughs) That's not what's happening. I'm like finishing my glass of wine, you know. Yeah. And I wasn't trying to make, I didn't, I honestly felt like my answer. No, I know. I know. I know. I just wanted to kind of give the the opposite flip side of, I just, I don't want people to get too caught up in any of the details like that. Really. You know what I mean? We've talked about this before. Yeah, no, I agree. That was going to be what I was going to say at the beginning was, <laughs> again, it's what works for you, but. um, Right. I, I don't think it's something to be overanalyzed. Right. The only like cautionary thing I want to throw out there is, I don't know that it's necessarily beneficial to be drinking, you know, wine really, really late. Right. That makes sense. It could work for some people, but um, I feel like if there is one thing that might not be the best for some people, that might be it. Yeah. If I drink too much wine, I don't sleep well. That is 100% true. Yeah. Now, and now if I don't drink like dry farm wines, I don't sleep well. It's crazy. The difference. Did I tell you that my husband finally is like on board with dry farm wine? Oh, really? What happened? Well, he, he has realized the way he feels drinking them. is He feels better. Like, like really, because he, okay, he doesn't like to spend money on things. He would like to buy a $7 bottle of wine that he can get at the Walmart grocery store. 
That's what he wants to buy. And so, <laughs> you know, I have to like not really go into details a lot about the top farm wines because it's more pricey. And as long as I don't go into too much detail about how much I'm paying for it, he is fine because he's like, you're right. We do feel better when we have it. So I'm like, awesome. Nice. It's just one of those things, you know, I'm frugal too. I want to spend my money where it counts and save money where I can. But saving money on the poor quality wine is actually, I'd rather drink less frequently and have better wine. That's just, you know, where I am with it. And I think he's starting to come around with that. So I'm really excited. Yeah, it really makes a difference. And for listeners, so we obviously love dry farm wines. If you're wondering, I guess we didn't say this because we assumed that listeners probably already knew, but they go around Europe and other countries and they find, they go, they personally go to all these like small boutique wineries and they find the wineries that are practicing organic practices without, you know, going through the rigorous craziness of getting an organic certification. And then they test the wines themselves beyond that to make sure the wines are completely organic, completely free of pesticides, mold toxins, anything like that. They make sure the wines are low alcohol and low sugar. So basically, you're getting all the benefits of wine, the health benefits from, you know, resveratrol, pisciatanol, all these compounds, the grapes, you're getting the deliciousness, the wine, you're not getting any of the toxic byproducts um, that often are creating the negative effects that people experience with wines. So yeah. And what's great is it's a subscription service. So you get a box every month. You can tailor that every two months, every three months, whatever you pick. Yeah. So whatever you want. What I like is you get to try all these fun varietals. That's what I like. So you can really expand your palate and they have like, you know, whites and they have reds, um, rosés. Sparkling. Yeah. All the things. And uh, for our listeners, you can get a bottle for a penny with your first subscription. So many people now will ping me all the time. They'll be like, I finally got my first penny bottle. <laughs> and I'm like, yay. So um, yeah, if you just go to dryformwines.com slash I podcast, you can get that deal. And I think it's important to point out because you and I both know this and you kind of hinted at it when you were explaining what they do. They don't actually make the wine themselves. Right. They're, they're sourcing it. So it's not like Dry Farm brand. They're the ones who are distributing it. They're not making it. They're not a, a winery themselves. They're doing a lot of work though. They are. They are. It's more than a normal distributor. Yeah, because they are literally visiting all of these wineries. And analyzing it. Testing the wines and holding them up to very rigorous standards. Yes. I'm just so grateful to them because it's like, otherwise I wouldn't know. Oh, you can't tell. I tried to figure it out myself. You just can't tell. I even heard, you know, at first I was like, okay, well, I'll just get European wines because they don't do all this in Europe. But then I heard that the European wines that they're going to distribute in America, they add stuff to because it's coming to America. And that's not even true. I mean, what you were thinking that like all European wines are okay. There's still a lot of, you know, pesticide use. But I think that they they add stuff like I heard somewhere that if you are in Europe drinking it, it's not the same as what they send to America. I'm not talking about the dry farm ones, but the others. Oh, yeah. Like make a Yeah. Yeah. They make a different batch for the, the American market. I heard somebody was telling a story. I can't remember where I heard this, but they were at a vineyard and they're like, have this one. This is the one we drink here. That's don't have that one. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So you can't just go in and pick. Anyway, that blew my mind. So I was like, all right, <laughs> it's going to be worth it to me. Oh, I did get something. Did you, have you noticed this yet? In my last shipment, I got a bottle that actually had Dry Farm printed on the back label. So like they actually, like instead of just being just a totally separate wine, I guess they're starting to partner with with wineries and branding. I got so sad though. I <laughs> I got just forwarded because since I just moved from LA, I get my mail, you know, forwarded and I got a, like a, a missed shipment. I think they sent me like just a gift shipment because <laughs> I got the UPS thing and it was like, you have a shipment from then. I was like, no, it went to the wrong place. Oh, that's really sad. <laughs> oh, and interesting note, when I read Dr. Fung's new book about longevity, he specifically mentions dry farm wines. Yeah. Yeah. They're all like in this sphere. Yeah, it's true. So I'm excited. I'm going to have Todd, the founder, on my new podcast. So I'm excited to interview him again because it's it's been a while since we interviewed him. 
It really has. He was maybe the first person we interviewed ever. I think he might have been. I think he was. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, I think so. Crazy. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 110, that's where you can get show notes for today's episode. So links to everything that we talked about will all be there. If you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com. You can also go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. You can follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast. And you can follow us on Twitter. We are the ifpod. And anything else from you, Jen, before we go? Nope, that's it. And I am about to hit the beach. I'm so excited. Awesome. I'm about to look at units. I might be moving again. (laughs) Have fun. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I will. Talk to you next week. Okay. Talk to you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember... The opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.